2: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Atessa Mosfegh returns to the show to talk about her latest novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Tessa Moschweg is a fiction writer from Boston. She was awarded the Plimpton Prize for her Stories in the Paris Review and granted a Creative Writing Fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. Her first book, The Novella Maglou, was recently published by Vintage, and you may recall us talking about that novella, as well as her short story collection, Homesick for Another World on a Previous Little Atoms. Her novel Eileen was awarded the 2016 Penn Hemingway Award and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. Uh, Tessa's latest novel is My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which we're going to talk about today. Atessa, welcome back to Little Atoms. Good to be back. How would you describe this book? It's a novel. It is.
3: It's about a woman in her mid-twenties living in uh, Manhattan, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and the year is 2000. It's the turn of the millennium. She comes from a rather privileged background. She is recently orphaned, um, has a pretty meaningless job at a pretty pretentious art gallery in Chelsea and is altogether pretty dissatisfied and disappointed by reality as she sees it. She makes this decision to go into what she calls hibernation for a year with the thought that if she could only sleep for long enough, her body, her mind, and every cell that she's composed of would have enough time to regenerate to the point that it would have forgotten all of the the past difficulties pain and trauma that that had, had stored and that she would eventually wake up a new person rejuvenated renewed with a different perspective um, and even maybe the world would seem different to her too that reality itself may have shifted
2: and that renewal is important because this is you know she takes this regime of of medication and this would be quite easy to think of as a book about someone that's suicidal mm-hmm. but then that's not really the point is it? it is about rebirth
3: mm-hmm. yeah yeah
2: in terms of talking about the time period that it's set as you said it's set in 2000 so where did the idea for the book come from?
3: Well, the idea for the book came from a desire to write a novel in a similar tradition as my short stories. I wanted to write a novel that was a development of the style of writing that I had developed in the collection. And um, this character is not unlike, I mean, in, in the first few scenes that we see her, is not unlike a character for one of my stories. It's just that the character sort of gave birth to this premise which required a novel to write. I did set out to write the novel. I didn't totally know what I was getting into when I began and it was very difficult actually to resolve. I did not realize that I was setting myself up with quite a challenge which is how do you write a novel about someone who sleeps? <laughs> <laughs> um, the answer is they you have to wake them up occasionally. <laughs> And
2: why the time period then? Why 2000?
3: It was setting, you know, in retrospect, I can come up with lots of reasons, but at the time it was more of a realization than a decision to set the book in the year 2000. And a lot of the book was sort of dictated through the narrative to me by the character. And Her judgments and assessments of the art world in that period and and the way that she was describing New York City, I identified as not being contemporary Manhattan at all, but being a pre-911 New York. um, The culture was different. There was still a sense of grit and glamour that had this sort of synergy. There was a sense of okayness in some of the people. Um, There was a You know, I don't want to call it the calm before the storm because it wasn't exactly calm, per se. It was like there was a sense of here we are, this is the way that things are, and we're so certain of it that there's even room for absurdity.
2: This was also the end of history, right? I mean, boy, is that guy's face red now.
3: Yeah. It was the end of a millennium. Um, And also the beginning of a new one, There there was a lot of people were in a good financial position including this protagonist riding the wave of the financial boom of the 90s there was the country did feel different than than what happened subsequently
0: yeah
2: and as you mentioned this is i mean it's fundamentally a story about privilege she's obviously financially secure enough to be able to do this thing, which is this project, which is to just decide to go to sleep for a year, mm-hmm. all our financial worries will be taken care of. And obviously, privilege is a conversation of, of now, you know, this is make, makes it seem, this book seem very current, because this is clearly a sort of hot political thing at the moment, the idea of privilege.
3: Well, it's interesting what gets projected onto a project, you know, because at the time I didn't think, oh, I would like to write a book about privilege. At the time, I was like, well, I have this premise. Now, how would it be possible that someone could take a year off and sleep? Well, she better have some independent wealth. You know, it came from it from the other side. I came at it from the other side rather than, oh, I want to write a book about privilege. What's the most privileged thing you could do? It was really, here's somebody with an existential and emotional problem. If she tries to solve it this way, I'm going to have to account for it. So, therefore, she needs to have money.
2: She's also, I mean, she's a really compelling character, but, I mean, she's fundamentally unsympathetic. And that's something you do throughout your writing. You write these brilliant but troubled, difficult characters. And you're not on Twitter yourself, but, you know, I seem to see more often than not, nowadays people seem to really struggle with the very concept that you can have an unsympathetic character. Have you come across that?
3: Yeah. I also think the the whole thing about her being unlikable is just a conversation that's being had I don't know like individuals don't come up to me and say oh she's so unlikable I mean if you don't like her that's fine but I think it's 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 more of a popular conversation topic than it is I think a real experience of the book I mean I mean I don't really know I, I don't I'm like, honestly, this whole, like, likability thing. Like, I don't like likable characters. They're boring. There's nothing to like about them. They're just blank, goody two-shoes people. What's interesting about that? I mean, this woman has opinions. She's complicated. She contradicts herself sometimes. She seems, to me, to be both more human and thus more relatable, than somebody who's, like, some, I don't know, very well-polished, civilized whatever. And I don't understand why people want to dislike her so much. I mean, is it just that, like, we're trained to dislike people with privilege because that's what's politically correct right now? Or is it that they just feel judged by her? Don't take it so personally. Is it, um...
2: Well, she's certainly judging other people in the book. So we'll get to her relationship with her supposed best friend Raver a bit mm-hmm. later on. But the, you know, the way that she describes her supposed best friend throughout the book is is unlikable.
3: She well, Riva is unlikable, but so is everybody else. I mean, I don't know. No, I, I, I don't. True. I mean, I mean, this is the thing. Like, what do you? What do you, like? What do you? We can point out, like, yeah, she's critical, but like, what else is, are you supposed to say about somebody? The whole point is that it's it's a it's a first person point of view with somebody who's deciding to opt out of life. So of course she's going to have criticisms of the, all the things that come and interrupt her.
2: You mentioned the short story collection and how this story has somehow come out of a sort of extension of of that collection. But I was also struck by McGlue, which is a completely different story and different time period. But it's a first-person narration by somebody who is, basically, throughout the book, under the influence of alcohol. And this is a story about someone who's under the influence of various different drugs. And I wanted to talk about how you, how you do that, how you create these characters, and how you, you know, you have them describe their situation and what's going on, while under the influence.
3: I just try to enter their realm i just put my i concentrate and meditate on who they are and where they are and what the situation is and listen to whatever thoughts might be running through their mind into mine and then editorialize it and manipulate it so that i can get the story told through the voice that i hear
2: and this brings us nicely to the, uh, the psychiatrist, Dr. Mm-hmm. Tuttle, who's another fantastic and monstrous creation. Mm-hmm. Where does she come from?
3: She sort of just appeared to me fully formed as a, as a figure. I never really saw her as a monster. I saw her as, like, pretty benign, actually, in her mannerisms. Actually sort of a gentle person. The gentle person managing great poisons and I thought she was really funny. She was quirky in a way that was unpredictable but also made total sense to me and, um, like, a wonderful comic relief. Mm-hmm. Um, and and she also added an important element to the book that I thought w- was sort of the solution to its own self-seriousness, which was an element of the fantastic. I mean, th- this isn't a book that's pretending to be nonfiction. I mean, this is a... There, there's an element of, um, I don't want to say it's like surreal, but you do have to suspend your disbelief in order to you know ingest the book. And she
2: is. She's is really funny. And in fact, this, this book is. I mean, it, it, we might sound like we're talking about a book that's a quite grim subject matter, but it's really funny. Mm. It is really funny. And I heard, um, I'm not sure what it was, it was another podcast, but David Sedaris mentioned your book and how much he you likes your work and described you, your writing as funny in a way that the person that's writing it doesn't necessarily know that they're funny. What, is, what do you think that means? Does that sound right to you?
3: I think he doesn't know me very well. <laughs> but, um, he's been a huge supporter of my work, and I'm really grateful and flattered that he likes it. And I think that he thinks that I might not know I'm being funny is is actually a huge compliment, because it means I'm getting away with it without being transparent. So... Um, Yes, I know I'm being funny. I'm just really good at it. Ha 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 ha.
1: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
3: Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it.
1: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
2: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Artessa Mosfegh. We're talking about her latest novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation. Artessa, we mentioned Dr. Tuttle, and she's the psychiatrist that prescribes this regime of various different medications. Uh, to our narrator, some of which are invented, which we'll get to in a minute, but plenty of them aren't. And she does take fistfuls of various different, you know, antidepressants or, you know, sleep medications and things. How much sort of research did you do into into these sort of medications and whether or not these great fistfuls of, of drugs would actually uh, do what they're supposed to do?
3: Well, I tried every single drug in the book and I built up a tolerance to to most of them. Um, to the point where I could take this amount of medication and continue to write, which is a total joke. Of course, I didn't do that. Um, There's no way I could have researched all this stuff. I mean, it's not meant to be taken literally either. I think there's probably enough out there that the average reader has associations with things like Ambien or... Um, I mean, Ambien is probably the most popular sleep aid, um, prescription sleep aid. I don't know. Do you call it Ambien here?
2: Well, I certainly know the name. Whether or not it's the same, it's the same. Mm. You would get that prescribed here. I don't know, but
3: I don't know. But you know, I figured it doesn't really matter how much the reader knows or, or how much this is accurate because it's like I said, it's not. It's not to be taken so literally the book kind of prescribes the terms for itself and then you read it and you don't worry i mean i don't know how worried people are like oh she's gonna be okay like of course she's okay she's narrating the book from retrospect we know that she survives and that's all you really need to worry about
2: well indeed so the um the main made-up drug Mm -hmm. um infametorol yep would you say um It's this this a drug that basically puts her into, like, a fugue state for days. She has these blackouts Mm -hmm. um, where she'll wake up and the the flat is full of, like, new shopping and stuff that she's been out and purchased in the three days when she's been under and has no idea that she's done it. Where does this idea come from?
3: Well, I think the idea, I mean, the blackout isn't a new idea. I mean, I needed, I mean, not to expose too much of the inner workings of the book, but something had to happen. I mean, a book about somebody sleeping successfully for a year would be very boring. So I, I ne- there needed to be some kind of self-interruption. And this new drug, inframiterol, creates essentially an alter ego for our character. And that alter ego seems to have an agenda. And therein lies the conflict that the protagonist needs to resolve. So that's really the purpose of the inframiterol, and I think, it, you know, doubly serves a purpose that she doesn't have to be conscious during any of these activities, which seem to indicate that she wants something more for herself than she can admit in her conscious life.
2: And indeed, you could have, bearing that in mind, you could have written... Those scenes where she she goes out under the influence to all of these parties and to the shops and things, but all we get is just the fragments of what might have happened in those days when she returned.
3: Right, we get the evidence of that. Right.
2: I mentioned Reva, her her best friend, um, and again, a best friend in inverted commas because
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, for both of them, really, one would never believe they were best friends. They sort of cling to each other mm-hmm. in the absence of anybody else. Why does she maintain this relationship? Why do they maintain this relationship?
3: I think they need each other, and I think they're very codependent in their need for each other. If you read the book, you'll see there's a a very delicate balance between them. Reva looks up to the protagonist in a way that also puts her in a position of judging her, and in doing so empowers Reva. And the same can be said for the protagonist. There's a system of judgment condemnation and superiority through comparison in 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 different areas of of personhood. And it's that sort of thing like you hate but when when we hate someone it might be because they're expressing something that we can't stand to look at in ourselves and I think that they are kind of reverse images of one another, although they do have plenty in common too. And I think they have they they enjoy they enjoy the disgust that each other elicits in their, you know, repartee.
2: Tell us more about Reva. Who is she?
3: Reva is, um a college friend, and she also lives in Manhattan. She lives on the other side of town. She comes from a more middle-class background. She's Jewish. She is. She works as a secretary... Um, first in a midtown insurance brokerage firm and then gets transferred to a different position in the same company who has offices in the World Trade Center. She's pretty superficial, sort of the kind of person to be obsessed with brand names and knockoff designer handbags and she's also like pretty keen on like self-help and know whatever's popular but she doesn't seem to have very many intimate friends and I think she's probably incapable of real intimacy just like our protagonist is and I think that their friendship remains in a loving yet sterile zone where they both feel safe so yeah Reva doesn't like for things to get messy and uh, neither does the narrator.
2: And I also want to talk about Trevor, who's our narrator's sort of on-off lover Uh um, in the past Mm -hmm. from the position where she's she's narrating. Um, Who is he?
3: Trevor is, yes, just as you said, an on-again, off-again quasi-boyfriend who works on Wall Street and is sort of a flat character. We don't get to know him very well. We know that he likes to make money, that he's kind of cocky. And that he returns to our protagonist at her request with some sort of sadistic thrill, um, and she's game. So he's just a recurring character that I think reflects her, her really sort of um, self-destructive need. Like if she were, if she were really if he, so Trevor confirms the protagonist's cynicism about love and human connection in that she she calls and requests his company when she most desperately needs to be comforted, and he provides her with company but absolutely no comfort. And in, in so doing, confirms her cynicism that there really is nothing that we can offer each other, that everybody is sort of his or her own satellite, and that feelings do not... Transgress.
2: And you mentioned earlier when talking about the idea of privilege that obviously when you're sitting down to write this book, you know, you're not necessarily addressing concerns of the day. But, you know, now we're in this sort of like Me Too world. Trevor, I mean, Trevor, you know, works on Wall Street. He seems like a bit of an asshole. But narrator also talks about other men that she's encountered at college, men that we might think should be better, you know, progressive men, left-wing men, sensitive men that read books and how basically, you know, those guys are are just as likely to be assholes.
3: I mean, she's an asshole too. Well, that is true. I don't know. I'm not, I can't even engage with that Me Too stuff. It's so, I didn't write this book as a response to Me Too. I wrote this book like two and a half years ago or three years ago. It takes place in the year 2000. Men and women behave... Men and women in their early 20s are idiots. And they don't know how to have respect for each other or themselves, oftentimes when it comes to sex. Because it's new, new to them. And we've all been poisoned by a totally pornographic culture that thinks that, you know, up until like six months ago every movie tv show etc i was like it's cool to be a womanizing asshole like that means you're like big strong man and you know up until like six months ago it was cool to be a little coquette slut because that meant you had power in your sexuality as a woman well okay so the rules have changed it doesn't mean that the past has changed or that we need to somehow like hold everybody accountable for things in literature that are occurring eighteen years ago. So I don't really see how this book fits into that conversation. But of course, people can talk about whatever they want.
2: And you've already mentioned that a narrator works for a while in a Chelsea art gallery. Right. Uh, it was a sort of like you know receptionist stroke ornament in the gallery, and um, this allows you to have like you know some fun with the with the art world of the, the end of the last century. And you mentioned that, looking back, that old world might have changed. So how how do you think it's changed?
3: You know, I really shouldn't say how it's changed um, because I'm not involved in the art world and I don't have an intimate knowledge or even well-placed opinions about what's changed in, in art, in galleries, in Chelsea, in New York. But what I have observed leads me to think that while at the turn of the millennium, There was a a sense that much of the power of art, visual art, was in its visceral strength, that it elicited a feeling in the body as well as the mind. And what I see happening more and more from my very ignorant point of view is that art has become more conceptual and more intellectual. I often walk into a gallery, look at a thing, and then have to read for half an hour what it means. I'm not saying that's less valuable than art from 20 years ago, but it's certainly different. And I wanted to capture, in my year of rest and relaxation, a time where art really was extremely visceral, immediate, very visual, to the point of disgusting absurdity. That, I thought, was hilarious.
2: And we do get plenty of that in this book, in some of the artists. Mm-hmm. The last time we spoke, we talked about some other writers that might be an influence on your writing in general, and I wanted to talk about what other writers might have been an influence on this book in particular.
3: You know, I, people ask me that this a lot, and, I, and my answer is consistently um, one note, and it's that I didn't read very much um, at all when I was writing this book. I read a little bit for research, mostly about the art world, but if there was a novel that influenced me. I would have to say that it, it was American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis. I wasn't reading the book at the time, but I had read it, and I kept it as a reference point for myself to help me understand the distance between myself as the author and my character as my narrator so that I could manipulate my narrator without losing her sense of authenticity in the voice.
2: It's funny because I immediately thought of American Psycho but didn't really want to say that because it seemed too obvious. But, yeah, you can definitely see its influence in this book, I think.
3: I mean, it's really obvious why I would think of it, too. I mean, it's a... You know, American Psycho is in a different... takes place in a different period in New York. But it is, you know, a sort of a satire of the city and the culture, especially to do with the moneyed parts of culture. I mean, I... When I pictured Trevor, I would almost picture Patrick Bateman, even though Trevor really isn't a murdering psychopath at all, but he might dress like <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean and I and I just I I love how far he pushed that character. That was really inspiring. I think Alice is a, a writer that I don't I would never compare my work to, but who, who I I think is so peculiarly genius that reading, like I just reread uh, Less Than Zero and it just I just find him t- so different from anyone else and really astonishing, I really love I really, really admire his work
2: And then just one thing for me and then I'll, I'll get you to read some if you would, oh, what, yeah. what are you going to be working on next?
3: I'm working on a new novel at very early stages, so um, not much to report yet, I'm really just doing research, but it's narrated by a ghost so it isn't I'm not setting out to write uh comedy it's a little it 's a little bit more of a serious and and historical novel. It takes place um the turn of the last century about a a young Chinese woman who immigrates to California during the Chinese Exclusion Act, so she has to do so in drag and then live as a man with much difficulty. In San Francisco in a fictionalized San Francisco in the early 1900s so um, it's sort of a saga and um, I haven't written it yet but
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds amazing Thanks. can I get you to a uh...
3: yeah read Riva had an interesting method of mixing her drinks after each sip of diet Mountain Dew she'd pour a little Jose cuervo into the can to take up the space her sip had displaced so that by the time she finished, she was drinking straight tequila. It was fascinating to me. I caught myself imagining the ratio of of Diet Mountain Dew to Jose Cuervo in that can, what the formula would be to measure it sip by sip. I'd studied Zeno's paradox in high school algebra, but never fully understood it. Infinite divisibility, theory of having, whatever it was. That philosophical quandary was exactly the kind of thing Trevor would have loved to explain to me. He'd sit across from me at dinner, slurping his ice water, muttering fluently about fractions of cents and the fluctuating price of oil, for example. All while his eyes scanned the room behind me as though to affirm to me that I was stupid. I was boring. Someone far better might be getting up from a table to go powder her nose. The thought stung. I still couldn't accept that Trevor was a loser and a moron. I didn't want to believe that I could have degraded myself for someone who didn't deserve it. I was still stuck on that bit of vanity, but I was determined to sleep it away.
2: So I've been talking to Atessa Moschveg, who've been talking about her latest novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, which is out now from Jonathan Cape. Atessa, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you.